I think a lot of people tend to get, to not say what's right in front of them, right? I say something. When I have someone trying to shut me down by insulting me or calling me bossy or outspoken, that's when I go full in. That's when I know I'm winning the situation. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it. From the good stuff like hiring and growing a team. To the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch. So what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Hey everyone, it's Carly. Today, Kara Swisher joins me on Skimmed from the Couch. She has been called the most feared and well-liked journalist in Silicon Valley. Kara has been covering the tech world for decades and is also the co-founder of the site Recode. She's currently the host of two podcasts, Sway and Pivot. Kara, thank you so much for coming on the show. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. Thank you. There's no couch though. That's true. Well, welcome from my kitchen. (laughs) First question we ask everybody, skim your resume. I'm really old. Do you really want my resume? Okay. I went to Georgetown University. I went to Columbia Journalism School. I worked for lots of people in very low-level jobs, like delivering mail at the Washington Post and being assistant to people, journalist type people. And then I got an internship at the Washington Post, which I then got hired from. And then I worked there and then worked at the Wall Street Journal, wrote a book during the 90s about uh, the beginnings of the internet, uh, which nobody was paying attention to. And then I worked for the journal for many years doing a wide range of things, beat reporting, columns. And then I started sort of an entrepreneurial activity inside the journal, which was a conference and then a new website, the, the blog, essentially. I started their first real blog effort, which was All Things D. And then I left and got investments and started Recode, sold that to Vox Media. And then I now also host, I started doing podcasting about five, six years ago, early on, and then shifted a lot to that and writing for the New York Times and doing a podcast, but I also do a podcast for New York Magazine too. So I do podcasting and writing now and events, but no events now with COVID. So I would say it's fair to say you're pretty busy. Uh, (laughs) What is something that people don't know about you that they'd be surprised? I spend a lot of time with my family. I mean, I'm really busy. I make a lot of content. I do four or five podcasts a week, major podcasts a week. And I also write a column every week. And so I work a lot, but I actually spend a lot of time with my family. And I just had another child, a little girl. So I, I spend a lot more time with my family than I think people would imagine given how much content I make. Well, congratulations on the new baby. So before we dive into your career, I want to go back and understand a little bit about where you came from, which is what was little Kara Swisher like? (laughs) The same, the same, the same, the same. I mean, I think I had a very strong personality from the get-go, especially as a girl, where people want you to shut up. Essentially, I didn't shut up very much. I had a nickname, Tempesta. My family's Italian, which is I think it's a compliment. They, I don't think meant it as a compliment, but I would always sort of upend things to, if I didn't like them. I did very well in grammar school. I was considered very, very smart. I read very early. People caught up with me pretty quickly, but I always had, knew what I wanted. Did you get that from your parents? Um, no, my dad died when I was really little. He was very sweet, actually. He had a very sweet personality. My mom, no, I don't think so. I think my mom t- talks in shades a lot. She doesn't say what she means a lot of the time. And I was very forthright. You know, I don't want to make you can't make sort of like Italians are loud, but we are kind of a very in-your-face family. So we say what we think. But I think my mom talks more, and as most people do, we, they say things that 
that's not what they mean. And I'm much more, I say exactly what I mean when I say something. So I don't know how I got it. I just did. When did you realize you wanted to be a journalist? Not for a while, actually. I was, I went to the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown, which is for diplomats and spies, essentially. So I wanted to uh, go into the military. Uh, my dad was in the military and I wanted to serve, but, and I wanted to do ROTC and everything else. And I, uh, I didn't because I was gay. At first it was illegal and then it was don't ask, don't tell, which was even worse in some weird way, which is just, and so it's sort of like, you know, separate but equal kind of thing. Although that was w- much worse, but it still wasn't, it was not, it was civil rights violation, I think, of, of gay people. So I didn't want to serve by lying, like keeping it to myself. I thought that was stupid. And so I never served. And by the time they sort of upended, I was too old. I was going to serve in the reserves, but I, I just didn't want to just lie. I, just, I was like, this is ridiculous. And so I would have had a career, I suspect, in military. I'd probably be running the CIA right now, but I'm being fired by Trump at this moment, but I wanted to be in military intelligence or in the CIA in some in some fashion to be an analyst, which is what I kind of do anyway. I kind of analyze and try to find out information and then have an opinion about it. How did you find your niche in technology journalism? I think you are very much known for and have spoken a lot about developing relationships with people before they become the names that we all know. It was really a world that was about to explode, but you were there in the beginning, right before it did. Yeah, I think I just was lucky to be placed there and to recognize what it was. I mean, I'm a big student of history. History was a big part of my education. And so I spent a lot of time understanding history of people like Henry Ford or Thomas Edison or all kinds of inventors. I was very aware of inventors and entrepreneurs and how, how technologies shift through time. And I was always interested in technology shifts, whether it was radio to TV or, or anything to radio, to horses, to cars and things like that. So I was always super interested in that. And so I, I think I saw before a lot of people what was happening with the digital revolution pretty early. I could, I could really recognize it, especially when the web first started with the World Wide Web and then the browser, when I saw the Netscape browser, I understood the tools you needed for each part to work. So I was, I paid a lot of attention to how things come apart. And so I think a lot of people didn't, you know, and so when I was early in my career, I worked for a newspaper, the Washington Post, and I covered retail and I wanted to shift over to digital when I met the AOL people, because I was like, oh, this is going to change how we communicate. There's a worldwide web of information. This is just what we talk about in Star Trek or Star Wars or whatever. And so I really, I, I leaned into it, especially mobile phones. I was really interested in the idea of a computer in your hand. I think I really did see the turn. I think there's moments in history where you see turns. Like right now, there's a turn happening. I pay a lot of attention to patterns, which I would have done if I had been in military intelligence because I would have done scenario building. So I think I spent a lot of time watching, watching major secular turns, essentially. When you think about some of the people that became leaders that you started following and developing relationships with early on, in, in those days, like who stands out to you the most? Well, all of them. There's technology and then there's the new technology, which was the internet. Like that's a very different technology than, you know, you needed the computers and the chips and everything else. And I didn't really cover that. I was aware of it. And I under, I, I knew the Intel people and Bill Gates. I had spent a lot of time covering the trial and everything. So I, I was, that was about power and, and too much power. And I'd met Steve Jobs and everything. But I really was focused on the internet people because that was the area that I think people were treating like technology. And I thought as a societal shift, like the invention of the cotton gin or the invention of, you know, mechanized manufacturing. It was like, oh, this is going to change everything. So I spent a lot of time meeting all the people and they weren't being covered by anybody. All the, all the boys were covering like chips 
And I was like, who cares? The car is what's important, not the engine. The engine's fine, sure, but they'll, they'll come up with new engines. Like, where does the car do? And so I was very focused on what it does versus how it's made because I didn't think that how it made made, made a difference. Like, it will, something's going to prevail, as it always does, and then one of them is going to take over. And so I spent a lot of time meeting the people who are creating the Internet, whether it was Jeff Bezos, who was always impressive to me from the very beginning, very driven, much older than most of the entrepreneurs, actually, at the time. Um, you know, Mark Andreessen, who, who invented the Netscape browser, Jerry Yang, who was at Yahoo, all of them. Just, I met all of them. The Google guys, which was the next iteration. They weren't the first ones. I met them in their garage. I met, you know, the Airbnb guys. I took them out for coffee because they couldn't afford it, you know, in, when they started their business. So I made it my point when I saw something interesting to meet the founders most of the time. And I continue to do that, you know, the Uber people. And even today, I pay a lot of attention to whoever... Uh, I just did an interview with a cameo guy because <laughs> I think it's interesting because I think the democratization of celebrity is interesting. So I, I just tend to try to go meet the people who are involved in the things I'm covering and early on, early on, typically. How did you get them to trust you? I just call them. I mean, that, the problem with most journalists is they're incredibly shy. I just call people or I contact them by DM or whatever was, there wasn't DMing, of course, back then, but I call them and I go visit them. I think most people don't do that. I know it sounds dumb, but I don't go there with any story in mind necessarily, although it's helpful when you work for the Wall Street Journal. It's one thing to, you know, have the courage, because I think you're right. Like a lot of people actually are very shy. And one of the things we talk a lot about on the show is the, you know, no matter what profession you're in, the idea of cold calling somebody, the fear and, and getting over that. I think that's how you make the first move. But how do you actually get these people who we all know what they became, but you met them before they became that thing. How did you get them to trust you? Well, I just call them and have discussions. One thing that I have that they don't have is I know all of them and they only know themselves. So one of the things I had was a linkage between, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's interested in Elon Musk, but he doesn't get to hang out with me, maybe unless they're friends, but they're not. And I hang out with him, not hang out, but I talk to Elon Musk. And then Zuckerberg's like, what's he like? Or, you know, I met him, I think he's strange or whatever, whatever they happen to say about each other. And so that was one of the things I, I knew them all versus them knowing sometimes they knew each other, but often they didn't, or often they don't actually. I mean, they meet in some, you know, how celebrities meet sort of in this sort of fake way. But I think I have relationships with all of them. And so, and I spend a lot of time understanding what they do, but I don't spend a lot of time kissing up to them either. I try to have cogent and intelligent conversations with them without becoming a fanboy. A lot of the reporters who covered technology really just were fanboys and the boy underscore boys. It was all white boys, essentially, most of them. And they wanted to make gods out of these people. And I just was interested in them as figures, historical and economic figures. And so I think I was pretty straightforward with them. It's interesting when they, that feared and liked, I, I think that's fine. I don't think I'm feared particularly, unless you do something wrong, then you, I guess I'm scary. But that the reason you should be scared is because you did something wrong, not because I know about it. You have a reputation as like a really, really good at what you do. And like, like not just really good, like the best at what you do. Yeah, but you should only be scared if you did something wrong. Like, I, I think I'm honest with people and that's very different. I don't think I'm scared. I think I'm honest. Like, I don't like this. I think this is wrong. And then like, I wrote a column this week about the Halo, the Amazon Halo device, which of course records your tone. And I'm like, I don't like this. And here's why. Now, if you're Jeff Bezos reading that, you could be mad about that or it's just, okay, that's a point of view. I'll listen to like any intelligent person. If you're, if I'm fairly 
giving my point of view after years of experience should listen to it. The idea of, of true candor is something that some people find yeah. really refreshing and some people find scary to your point. I think yeah. one of the things that we talk a lot about on the show is management style, how to find yours and how to give feedback. And I think we talk a lot and have talked a lot about in the past around how to bring candor to work in a way that brings people along. How has candor worked for you and, and has it also worked against you? It hasn't. I just, I don't, I think I don't buy that. I mean, if people don't like you, they don't like you. And if they're going to use that as an excuse, well, you know, they're idiots. You know, I think what, what people confuse is saying anything you think and it not being informed with candor, right? Like if you're ill-informed and you say something, you're just an idiot. Like, welcome to President Trump, right? He just says things that are stupid or lies or whatever. And so, you know, that's not candy. You know, that people are like, I like how he tells it like it is. I said, what he tells it like it is is not accurate. Like, that's really irritating to me. So I don't particularly like tell it like it is people if they're telling you stupid things or lies or things like that. But I think if people are very clear about what one thing, they what they want, what they need, what they think. I don't see any plus in doing anything but that at work. And I've never seen a downside to it. And the people who hold it against me for telling the informed truth, which is informed by experience or reporting or whatever, well, they can go stick it. I don't really care. Like it hasn't hurt me. It, it just hasn't. I, it's, it just never does because I know of what I'm talking about. And I think smart people recognize that, men or women. I think women spend a lot of time editing themselves in ways that are that do, they don't like, I think about it, I think about it a lot because I'm gay. And so I was, became, came out at a time when it wasn't good to be gay. Now it's much better. It's not great for everybody, certainly, but it certainly was terrible then. And I was just talking about this with someone. There was a movie, which is a rom-com with Kristen Stewart. It's cute, but actually people who were closeted back then, I had a real problem with that movie. And not because I didn't think it was delightful, but what her girlfriend did to her had happened to me. And I was like, that wasn't cute and I wouldn't forgive it. You know what I mean? At the time and of hiding, a hiding in plain sight. And so I think when you're like that, you don't care what people think of you. Like if you, you've had enough of that. And so whatever you are, whether you're shy or, or outspoken or whatever, hiding yourself never works. It never works for you in a career. And I know people think it does. They've got to be sly or strategic. It just, they can see you coming. It's the best way to be. I know I don't tell everybody everything I'm going to do, but I certainly find hiding yourself to be one of the more negative characteristics in a career. I think that's really, really important advice. My next question is going to be around how you created innovation in the places that you worked, which were at the time, very traditional places yeah. that were not known for innovation, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal. And yeah. in each of those places, you were able to really carve out a name for yourself by not hiding yourself. I would love to one, hear a little bit about how you did that in those places and then how you actually would advise others who are working no matter what the industry in, in a more traditional environment to, to innovate. Well, it's interesting because I, I think a lot of people tend to get, to not say what's right in front of them, right? Everyone sees an awkward situation and no one says anything. You have everyone looks down, like, but nobody says anything. I say something. I'm like, no, that's terrible. And I remember being in a meeting at the Wall Street Journal when they wanted to do a Saturday journal. And I was like, why do we want more print publications? Everyone's like, well, we're here to talk about that. I'm like, but you're not even asking the question of why we want it. Why not plow all that money into digital? Because that's where everything's going. And here's my proof. You know, I was making a proof of case. But and everyone's like, Kara, just being outspoken as usual. I'm like, yeah, I am. I'm being outspoken with informed in opinions. And that moment where they say, Kara being outspoken, is where people shut up. And that's where I don't shut up. When I have someone trying to shut me down 
by insulting me or calling me bossy or outspoken, that's when I go full in. That's when I know I'm winning the situation. And so I think one of the things that I try to do is if I, I try to develop a point of view, that's what, a, that's what entrepreneurism is a, is a point of view. And then I have the guts to do it. Like, and I have the guts, if it doesn't work, to be okay with that. If it doesn't work, I then examine it and why it doesn't work. And most of the things, when they don't work, there's something I didn't do executionally right. But I have a theory of something, whether it's, we need to get into blogs back in the 2000s, or we need to get into digital media right away, or podcasts sure are interesting, and now the devices are all in place. That was my theory. My second theory was people are tired of the twitchy world. I'm going to make a long podcast. I'm going to make an interview podcast because people are tired of twitchy cable Twitter conversations. They want substantive conversations. That was another theory. That's when I didn't change. And then around it, I tweaked around the edges or where I put it and moved when it felt necessary to move or when I had played out that particular thing. And I think really good entrepreneurs have an ability to come up with a theory of whatever they're making, whether it's a dating app or whatever it is, whatever their product happens to be, and then tweak it along the way. And I think that's really important to recognize that you can continually shift and change. And I don't mind leaving things behind. I just did it again. I do it all the time in my career. I'm like, now I'm going to go over to the New York Times and do this. And guess what? I'll have another one. I don't know when, just when I, you know, like it's that Mary Poppins thing. When the wind changes, I'll be gone. That's the kind of way I look at my career. And then I'll do something else that pleases me and makes me happy and makes me feel passionate about what I'm making. When did you realize you were an entrepreneur? Oh, early on. When I was a reporter, a lot of reporters are very happy just to do stories. And I was like, when I covered retail, I'm like, boy, our newspapers screwed because, you know, all these retailers were dying. There's one called Heckinger's, not in existence anymore. I covered all these. And I saw all the financial troubles. And then I was like, huh, this newspaper's business is based on this stuff. That's a problem. Like I was thinking about the business I was in and then I would go classifieds. Wow. They suck. They're printed. What? There's Craigslist. Hey, like I would spend a lot of time like seeing the impact. I think a lot of people don't do that. They don't know anything about business. And I was always interested in the media business, like, and how it could be uh, upended because my salary depended on it at the time. So Danielle and I, when we started the scam, I think also had business interests and we were on a journalism path, but we're trying to figure out how to marry the business interest with the journalism path. You know, at the time when we would go for informational interviews, like the advice we got was like, you're going to have to leave here, leave where you're working and like go to business school or start, you know, start something on your own, but like, you're never going to get it done here. What's interesting to me is that you eventually did like start something on your own, but at the time, like you were innovating within the big company. A couple of times I should have left. I should have left. I was being too safe in that case, but it wasn't a bad idea. Cause then I could like, I worked with Walt Mossberg, right? So that was the better part. And at the time he's retired since, but at the time he was at the peak of his power in terms of tech. So it was a perfect person to be linked with. You can make things inside of companies as long as the leadership allows you to. And at the time at the Wall Street Journal, Paul Steiger and some other people were very open to us doing that largely because they didn't want us to leave and they saw our energy and entrepreneurship. And, and then we made money and we made a lot of money. And so that was good too. You know, one of the things I pay a lot of attention to is making money. Like at whatever I do, I'm like, I'm going to make some money. Like the podcasts make a lot of money. And everyone was like, oh, how can you make money in podcasts? I'm like, go ahead, don't do it. I'm making money over here. So I don't really listen to the general idea of what things are. Like I remember podcasts don't make money. I'm like, mm-hmm. yours don't, but mine do. 
Like, you know, maybe you're not the rethinking it through correctly. So I don't tend to take conventional wisdom. That's another thing. But I think you can do entrepreneurship from anywhere. As long as you have a management that it allows it, that lets you be, like at Vox, they let me create podcasts. And I had the first podcast, which was me and an intern in a closet. But then now they have a big business. But the willingness to let me do that shows great foresight by Jim Bankoff and others there. You have said that you are not a good employee. I'm a terrible employee. What do you mean by that? I don't like to listen to bosses. I'm not a difficult employee. That's very different. I'm not like obstreperous for no good reason. I just, I, I want to do things on my own and I don't want someone to tell me what to do. And I recognize that early in my life that I don't like being told what to do and I don't mind making mistakes if I do it on my own. So those are two things. If you want to do things on your own, you have to not mind losing and you have to not mind failing. I had a few too many bosses who told me what to do who I thought were stupid. And, you know, you never know what kind of boss. Sometimes you get a great boss, right? But a lot of the time you don't get a great boss. Like, and you know better. And so why should I listen to that person just because they're a hierarchy? So I just wasn't respectful of the hierarchy. I prefer to find wisdom below me, above me, all kinds of places. Like I would find wisdom in all kinds of people that were unlikely, right? And so I think the way we structure workplaces is highly hierarchical. It's very male, you know, someone's on top, someone's on the bottom. And so I just don't like that. And so I I like to, like, I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. I just don't, I just don't, I don't prefer it. So why why do it? And everyone's like, oh, that's Erica. And I'm like, well, don't do it for yourself then. I don't, it's like none of your beeswax what I do. What are you like as a boss? I'm okay. I'm okay. I don't love managing. I have to say, I'm, I'm not bad. I'm not bad. I think people expect me to be this sort of mean person. I'm not actually, I think I'm actually quite cooperative as an employee. I don't make, I don't, I'm not particularly difficult unless it's like, I don't like what you're doing here and here's why. And I don't want to do that, but I don't throw fits. I don't yell. I'm not a yeller. I just don't like management because I'm not that, I'm not that a lot of management, really good managers spend a lot of time developing and mentoring people. And I'm not bad at mentoring, but they want other people to excel. I'm interested in me excelling. Well, so when you're hiring someone, are you looking for the quote unquote good employee? No, different things. I want, here's what I'm looking when I'm looking for you working with me, but I don't do any hiring anymore. Like the people at the times hired my staff and I have to approve of them, of course, to see if I can work with them. And if it doesn't work out, I can express myself, but it's their, their job to figure out the management of those people. And they know better than I do. And so I tend to give that away. I have this new theory called staff zero. I want no staff whatsoever. Like I love that. I think you're writing a book called staff zero. I think the best way to manage people is to, is to be honest with everybody about what everyone's contribution is. As I've thought about it, like say you're working on a podcast with me or something like that. What are you contributing that's really great for the podcast? And if you're contributing that, that's great. If you're not, we have to have a discussion, right? I think a lot of people sort of let things go. And I think I don't, I, I don't, I'm like, what are you helping here? Or what am I helping here too? What am I contributing to this? And if I'm not contributing enough, I try to get out myself. And I think people should conduct their careers that way. If they're not contributing or, or happy with what they're doing and going through the motions, I'd prefer them not to be there. And I think they would prefer them not to be themselves not to be there. They're just doing it just to have a job. And I accept that if you really need the money, but a lot of people have more choices than they think. Not today with this pandemic, it's going to be a slightly different situation. But once everything recovers, there's a lot more choices and people tend to stay in jobs they don't like. I'll never do that. I just leave. I can wait tables if I had to, honestly. I can't. I'm good at it. How much 
of your decision-making is gut-driven versus data-driven? What's the balance? I think probably data, like not fully data, but I, I recognize patterns first and then I have a theory. Then I investigate the theory. Like I had an idea that people were sick of twitchy cable driven bullshit. So I had a theory about that and I said, I, I feel like that. So I wonder how other people feel. And I bet if I make something that's more substantive, people will like it. And then the same thing with Pivot. When we did Pivot with Scott Galloway, he was not the first choice to be the co-host, right? But I had a theory that we really had chemistry and he had real wisdom and I had a, something different than him and we both sparked in just the right way. And luckily I was at a place where they said, okay, we're gonna trust your instinct on this. So, so that was instinct. And also then I looked at the data when he, he came on my show, he was getting numbers as high as Elon Musk. And I was like, huh, people seem to like something here. And so I did it again and it was the same thing. And so it, my, the data confirmed my instinct, I guess, if that makes sense. I think you have to have an instinct, but then you have to support it by data and then change it based on the data you get. And also change your instinct a little bit. Who do you go to for advice? Not so many people anymore. <laughs> Different people. It sounds dumb sometimes I ask my kids things. <laughs> like everybody, there's wisdom everywhere, right? Sometimes I ask my mom, even though I don't respect a lot of some of her opinions uh, about Fox News, et cetera. But, but I, I go everywhere. I go to friends. I go to bosses. I go people who are above me. I go to, I'll go to very important people. People are always like, someone was like, where do you think media is going? I go, let me call Richard Plepler. Like, and then I call, they're like, what? Like, I'm like, oh, I'll just call him. I, I tend to like go to the top. How do you think Airbnb is doing? I was like, oh, I'll call Brian Chesky and ask him. Does it register for you that that's like, that's unique, that it's kind of crazy that you can just call Brian? No, because I think a lot, they're more, people are more open. I'll talk to anyone who reaches out to me. Most people, not every single, I got hundreds, hundreds, but if people give me a, a, a call, I tend to respond. And Twitter, people are always shocked. They're like, you respond. I'm like, well, why wouldn't I? You had a good point. Like if they have a dumb point, if they want to say something dumb to me or lecture me, I like, I'm like, screw you. But if someone want, has a good point, I'm like, oh, that's really smart. Or that's interesting. And if pe most people who ask me in a, if I have time in a cogent way, I tend to answer. You'd be surprised who you can get through to. I'm always like, oh, I'll try to reach that person. And then I try to find their email or their text, and I text them and DM them. I, what did I DM the other day? I wanted to know what, how much revenue a company made, and I sort of knew one of the investors, and I DM them. I'm like, hey, I'm doing this piece. I would like to know the thing. And he's like, I'd rather not tell you. And I said, I'd rather you tell me. And then I said, I'm going to find out. And then he told me. <laughs> he thought I could find out. I could have, by the way. You have done throughout your career, obviously, you've interviewed, as we're talking about, a lot of rich and powerful people that have big jobs and, and don't have to say yes to an interview. Yes, they don't. Increasingly, they don't, but go ahead. But a lot of them have. Yes, they do. How do you get them to agree to an interview with you, knowing that you have a reputation for holding their feet to the fire and that, you know, to your point, like, it's not, you're not like inventing things that they've done or should talk about, like, it's raw, real stuff, but it's not a relaxing interview experience for them. I think smart people like smart conversations. I think they're bored in their minds about talking points. Like, look at Elon. Why would he come back? We argue all the time. Like, he and I have had little Twitter wars. Like, he's smart. He wants to have a smart conversation. He doesn't mind mixing it up, even when you don't agree. And sometimes that means we don't talk for three months. Sometimes we do. Like, Steve Jobs was the same way. He kept coming back. We were not easy on him in those interviews. And most people licked him up and down. But he liked a smart conversation. He, he liked disagreement. But he liked disagreement wasn't just to be disagreeable, right? He liked when we're like, but 
our theory is this, and then he would argue it, like, but I think this. And so I think smart people really, unless you have an ego and you just can't stand anyone disagreeing with you, which there are lots of people like that. I think most smart people like it. On some level, like I doubt Mark Zuckerberg will talk to me again because I tend to, he tends to say stupid things to me. But you know what? I think they're good for him, honestly. Like you finally got to see what he thought about Holocaust deniers and then he of course changed his mind two years later. So I, I, I didn't think I did. And if you listen to that, there's not one second I was unfair to him there. He had the ability. He did. He walked into it himself. I did not trick him. I was really clear. I reread the transcript last night in preparation for this interview. And what I was struck by, you actually talked very little. That's right. That was a trick. That wasn't a trick. That's why I thought if I could interject here and say, you're an idiot, that would be helpful to me or if I'd feel better. But let's have him talk. You spoke very little. And I think the the communication and interview style is, is fascinating. It was really fascinating to reread it last night. Of all of those kind of interviews, does his stand out the most? Who stands out the most? I think Mark and I have a really interesting rapport. I wish he would do another interview with me. I think he benefit. I think he benefits from the interviews he does with me, even though like the sweating thing or the Holocaust scenarios, he always manages it. But actually, he actually has to try harder. And you know, most he has to try too easy. It's ridiculous. When he has those kiss-ass interviews, they're just so embarrassing for him and for the interviewer. Um, and I don't think I'm unfair to him. So I think I would like to talk to him. I'd love to talk to Jeff Bezos again. We used to talk all the time a million years ago. Now he doesn't need to talk to anyone. He's the richest man in the world. Who have you not interviewed that you'd like to? You know, I, everyone says you shouldn't read Trump, but I'm like, he lies all the time. So all you'd be doing is checking lies in real time. Like, no, I just, I don't see any plus in that unless you could just really stop him. I think my first question to me is what happened to you as a kid that you're like this, that you constantly lie to yourself? I think just out and out say, what happened to you? But, you know, I think I would love to interview just different people. I, I, I'm trying to think right now, I'm sort of interviewing all the people. Like today, yesterday, I interviewed the two scientists who created the COVID vaccine. You know, I interview people who interest me. Huh. I'd like to interview the Pope, I guess. And I'm really interested in him. And I don't, I've never really read an interview. I've felt like I, there's so much going on there that, and so com he's a complex personality. I think he'd be fascinating, although I think that there's a language barrier there. Um, I'd certainly like to interview someone like Angela Merkel. I think she would be fascinating. So it depends on the person. Like sometimes you just want to reveal someone in an interesting way. Other times you want to have an argument with them. Other times you want to just have a fun time. Some people are just fun to interview right? I'll tell you someone I interviewed recently that I really enjoyed. I like all my interviews, but I always like interviewing Hillary Clinton. She's, she's a trip and not what you think she is most of the time. So I think I bring out the real Hillary Clinton a lot when I talk to her. And I'm, I don't suck up to her either. She either gets sucked up to her or attacked and she's much more complex than that. But I did an interview with Alexander Vindman because I was, you know, he looked like my dad. I, my dad died when I was little. My dad was also a military person. And I was, wanted to know why someone did what they did. I think everyone sort of looked at him as this cartoon hero with the, with, you know, standing there with the, with the uniform and everything. And I wanted to know why he did it. Like, why did he, why? Why him and not someone else? And so I really liked that interview. I wanted to understand how someone could lose power that way. He could have just said nothing and he didn't. And I wanted to know why he did that. I was fascinated with him. You have two teenage sons, but you also have a baby daughter. What are you like as a parent and what has it been like juggling all of this in this pandemic when you work as much as you do? I love being a parent. I think I'm a pretty good parent. I actually, I make mistakes. I've made mistakes over the years. Uh, 
But I think in general, we're very close. I, my two sons, I think, are really wonderful young men. We've spent a lot of time, me and my ex, making sure they're wonderful. We think a lot about their privilege and not to like beat them over the head with it, but to be, make them aware of the luck they've had in their life. And also that they have a responsibility as young privileged men to really think very hard about that and other people. And so we try to, we've tried to do that. I just love spending time. We spend so much time together. We just, uh, last night they were, we made dinner, but they were sitting, we have a small room, me and my, someone, I just got married again. We were in our room and they're, they're all there lying on the bed with us. With the, you know, we were like, it was really adorable. They want to be around us. And I really like that. We didn't have to make them or anything else. They just enjoy being together. But they're also very independent. So the two boys are very independent. And I try to show interest in what they're doing. I try to get them to learn how to disagree well together. When they say things, I want them to prove what they're saying. I want them to really spend a lot of time thinking hard when they say things because they can say a lot of stuff and everyone just lets them. And with the daughter, it's interesting because one of the things that's great about her is She's just got a lot of confidence. You can tell like when you have kids, they're, they have genetically their certain way. They really are. And, and then you can stress that stuff or not. But she's very confident. And I was thinking as I was watching her being really confident and she loves them and they're great with her, you know, so that's really a delight to watch was that when is that going to get taken away from her? I, I just was thinking about that. Like, who's going to make her think she's not as confident? The way she wanders through life now is completely confident. And it's her nature. Her nature is confident and happy. And I, I was like, I have to think really hard with a girl. Like, I am going to have to think, how can I stop people from taking what is clearly an asset and making her feel like it's not an asset? I remember someone saying to me, how, how come you, you shouldn't be so confident? That's what someone told me when I was a little girl. And I was like, well, too bad. I remember that. Don't be so bossy. I remember, you know, that kind of stuff. And so I'm thinking really hard about how to keep that with her. The other thing is she's really quite adorable. And so everyone is always like, you know, you're so beautiful. Like you, and you could see her respond to it because she gets smiles a lot because she's, she's quite beautiful little girl. And I'm always like, well, she's smart. Like, I don't want her to get by on looks. It sounds dumb, but I'm like, wow, it's fascinating to watch just as it was when my younger kid, my younger kid, he happened to like the color pink when he was a kid and it got knocked out of him. Like, I rem and we lived in San Francisco, for goodness sake. But it was like one day he liked the color pink and the next day he just couldn't like it. Like it was, and I sort of was like, I felt sorry for boys, like, it didn't mean he was, I kept going, you know, India, it's India's favorite color. The whole nation of India loves the color pink and orange and stuff like that. And so I was trying every way, but it was sort of interesting how they moved very quickly into gender roles. We're in San Francisco, like even here, they understood that like one was like, I can't look at princess movies. I can't. And I was like, why you liked them before? Like, you know, it had, it was wrapped up in, in being gay, which they're not. <laughs> like, it was like, you know, maybe being part of a gay family, you want to make sure they're not gay, which I'm like, there's no correlation whatsoever, you know, scientifically, let me show you the studies. Like, I thought about it with them, and I was less worried about it. But with, with my daughter, I think about it a lot more. Like, I will not have that taken away from her, because she has it now. And I don't want someone to steal her confidence or make her feel she has to hide it. Well, I think if there's a parent who can combat that, I think it's you. <laughs> You're great. You're fantastic. I do tell my kids they're great all the time. I think they feel they're great. Um, I think parents don't do that a lot. They're, they can be very critical with their kids. I'm not very hard on homework. I'm not very like, you have to get A's, you know, as long as they're happy. As long as I can argue with the teacher with enough information. Yeah. I want them to be smart and that's it. And I don't care how it manifests itself. 
I'm going to move us into our lightning round. Last segment, morning person or night owl? Night owl. Favorite quick dinner to make? Oh, that's a good one. Salmon. Grilled salmon. What's the last show you binge watched? Oh, I'm watching The Crown again. Although it was Queen's Gambit, obviously. But The Crown, I, I watched the Diana part. And then I had to go back and watch the whole thing. I never watched any of them before. I was like, ugh, the British loyalty. But now I love Queen Elizabeth so much. I am obsessed with her. No, I love her. She's such a good egg. Like, I, like, I, don't, I know it's all fiction. I like, I like the whole gang of them. Yeah, I love all of them. What's your toughest interview that you've done? Oh, none of them. I don't feel very, I don't think they're very tough. You know, sometimes Bill Gates can be tough. He doesn't give a lot and uh, he gets obstreperous. Probably President Obama. I'll tell you why, because that guy never gets doubted ever. He's so entertaining and charming. You try to figure out when you interview someone what will motivate them. And I realized pretty early on that anger, if you make him mad or make him feel, if you disagree with him, you get a better response. So I kept disagreeing with him in the interview and he did not like that at all. It was so funny. It was, and of course he didn't. Of course he's the president. He gets to say whatever he wants all the time and nobody disagrees. And right before the interview, he did, it was so funny. I got less time than other interviewers. I got like 25 minutes versus 35, which is, I don't think it's enough time to have a real conversation. And so I know it's a lot to talk to the president, but whatever, I did, they got 10 minutes more. And so I leaned over to him right before, and we were very close to each other. And I said, hey, listen, uh, uh, and by the way, some internet YouTube star got 10 more minutes than I did, which infuriated me. And so I said, listen, I got 10 less minutes than everybody else. And you tend to go on when you talk in paragraphs and no one interrupts you, but I'm going to interrupt you. And I'd really like to, you to be aware that I'm going to interrupt you. And you're probably not used to that because everyone just lets you go on. And he said, I heard you were obnoxious. And I said, yes, I am. And then we went into the interview and it was great. And it was good. It was a very salty interview in many parts because, you know, he he usually gets sort of petted, like everyone loves him and stuff. And I don't dislike him. I just think that he deserves to have some disagreement. So that was good. And then later, I'll finish this, my ex worked for him as the CTO of America, Megan Smith. And when any administration ends, you stand in the line and get a picture with the president. She made me come. She's like, we have to have a family picture. I'm like, no, I don't want to go. But I said, okay, I'll go for the kids. And so we walked in and the minute he saw me, he was like, oh, how'd you get in here? <laughs> like, how'd you get in? I was like, hi, good to see you. And then my one son, who's really a bullion and friendly said, like, he's like, Louie, he's so, he's so good. Obama's so good. He goes, Lily, you're, uh, you're going to be a chef. I'm going to come to your restaurant one day. And he's like, yeah, sure, Mr. President, it'd be great. You know, he does that kind of thing. And then he turned to my other son, who is very entrepreneurial, actually, and invents things and really creative and that my very engineering mindset. And he's like, Alex, I think, you know, you're going to create a company. I hope I can invest in it someday, you know. And Alex goes, I'll think about it. And I was like, yes. And he goes, that's your kid. I'm like, yes, he is. <laughs> Why do you think, you know, as a parent now, especially, why do you think it's important to have female leaders in your industry? Oh, well, there aren't any. Because there aren't any? I, there aren't enough. There aren't any. There aren't enough. And the ones that aren't get silent. Look at the woman who was the CEO of Pinterest or just, there's just, you, you can put them on your hands. There's a lot at the middle levels for sure. But uh, I think there have, there just aren't. Look at the numbers. Like, it's just depressing when you think about it. You are known for having a great collection of Ray-Bans. Yeah, I have six pairs. Oh, I thought there was more. Okay. Well, I was going to say, what's your favorite pair? 
they're all the same. <laughs> they're all the same. They don't, I have aviators. That's it. Why do you have six? Because I bought a lot of them because they're, they're actually uh, vintage and I saw them all at the same time and I bought, I knew I would wear them. I'm like that with clothes. I wear the same shoes. I wear the same, I buy six of the same things. I'm like Steve Jobs. <laughs> Kara, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 